sticking with offshore, there's uh, a new venture from Maersk to, oh wait, Rosemary, I knew it, I knew it, jump in there, Maersk, Maersk. <laughs> you did that on purpose, no, I just, you did that I, on purpose. I, Maersk. <laughs> yeah, that's All right, There we go. <laughs> You're welcome, listeners. You're welcome. <laughs> welcome to Rosemary's Grammar Hour. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, a lot of topics. We're going to talk about satellite outages, downing some wind turbines. We'll talk about offshore wind turbines potentially mess- messing with ships' radar. Uh, lots of other uh, battery issues, battery technology offshore. We'll talk about some policies over in Europe. There's supply chain woes, layoffs with Nordex, Siemens Gamesa, and others. And lastly, this will be Rosemary's big time to shine. Some two-bladed floating wind turbines that are supposedly going to be deployed by 2024. So before we get going, be sure to subscribe. You'll find in the show notes below Rosemary's YouTube channel, where she continues to churn out great new renewable energy content and Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, keeping you up to date with the new podcast, videos, uh, news from around the web and more. So let's get right to it. So first on the docket today, there is a satellite outage, which is actually coincided, but they're not sure uh, if it's related to the war in Ukraine between war, uh, Ukraine and Russia, but 5,800 of Enercon's uh, turbines have been disrupted. Uh, there's some of the remote operations they're monitoring from satellite connections. Alan, what's your take on the situation? I mean, this is the first we've really heard of this since we've been doing this show, but obviously as things get more and more interconnected with the web and you know all these remote monitoring, we're probably going to see more of this. Yeah, we are. And a lot of uh, internet runs through Ukraine. Like a lot of software development happens in the Ukraine. And it's not surprising that uh, uh, the the remote operations happen through Ukraine. That that would seem kind of obvious because so much does run through the Ukraine. The the, the funny thing was uh, Intercon was discussing this as... Um, Responsible operators have a backup system. So that left everybody else as being unresponsible operators, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So the what are you going to do, right? What are you going to do? You got to prepare for every conflict around the world to make sure your turbines are connected to the Internet. That seems like crazy talk, right? But maybe you do. Maybe every turbine needs to have a cell phone connection. Maybe every turbine's got to have a satellite uh Elon Musk SpaceX Starlink system connected to it because that's what it's starting to feel like because we're all interconnected and when we have war in one place it seems to affect everybody around the world and uh, Rosemary do you guys see any disconnects in Australia from the Ukraine war situation? Well, my internet has been really shockingly bad over the last few days, but I'm attributing that to a combination of Australia never having taken (laughs) 
broadband broadband infrastructure seriously for some reason um and secondly because we've just got the most ridiculous amounts of um water and um flooding and rain storms so uh, that's, i'm assuming that it's that we are geographically pretty far away from um ukraine so I, i'm not immediately rushing to attribute it to that well rosemary what's i mean we've talked about engineering things to be as bulletproof as possible where they're financially feasible so, I mean, would you think that having backups for your backups and like Alan said, maybe you have a secondary internet source ready to go, do you feel like that would make financial sense for some of these companies as they become increasingly remote and increasingly monitored through the web and other, other uh, means? Yeah, I'm really surprised. I, I don't think this is um, necessarily a, a financial balance to make. I'm surprised it's not regulated, that they have to be able to to continue to operate even in, in you know, a satellite outage. I'm surprised that they can't. I mean, obviously, um, distributed energy through, you know, a lot of wind turbines, a lot of solar panels, it's harder to disrupt that than it is to, you know, just um, bomb a, a large coal or nuclear power plant. But um, I'm sure that those really big centralized power plants have backups in place so that if they lose their internet connection, they can continue to provide power. And um, I obviously don't know enough about the details of this story, but it's nearly unbelievable to me that it's possible to have a wind turbine that needs a satellite connection to, to work. Um, yeah, so um, <laughs> I, I'm surprised. And I think that definitely that they should have those uh, at least a couple of layers of redundancy in place. Well, it seems like the way cars are. I used to work on cars when I was in high school. I had, to, I had you know, my brother and I each had our own old, like he had an old Mustang. I had an old Ford Bronco. And then when you work on these cars that are almost entirely mechanical, you start to wonder like what actually has been improved by the just the incredible amount of electronics added to modern cars like yeah they're definitely more fuel efficient there's a lot of benefits but ultimately like you can't even work on your own car anymore like you know and, and so this seems like it's sort of mirroring that same thing like ultimately a wind turbine is a mechanical device you wonder at one point at what point you're like man this trade-off this these things are just too complicated and require too much complexity to fix or to maintain or too many things can go wrong I don't know if that's where this is going, but I think you're right that redundancy needs to be pretty significant and simple. So moving on, uh, Alan, this is, I'm going to throw to you first. There's some reports that offshore wind turbines might interfere with ships' radar signals. So obviously on our other podcast, Struck, we've talked at length about how 5G and that rollout has been you know, difficult around the world because they've been worried that 5G would mess with the radar systems of aircraft obviously it's a huge concern because we don't want a single plane to go down with passengers in it you know obviously in the sea the stakes are lower but do you see this being an issue i mean they obviously do so much in aerospace wouldn't they have maybe sort of knocked some of these kinks out where it would maybe trickle down to the shipping industry it, it's going to affect radar systems you got these big massive thousand foot objects in the water, absolutely it's going to affect radar systems in, in ships. The question is, does it matter? And were you planning on weaving between these wind turbines for some reason where you need to navigate between them? Hopefully not, right? Uh, but yeah, it will interfere with radar systems. And there's been a lot of talk in the last couple of years, kind of pre-COVID, about putting coatings on the turbines so that the radars don't bounce back and it, it causes less interference. Yeah, sure. But I have seen nobody implement it. 
So even though it's a discussion point all the time, no one's implemented it. And on the FAA side, on the airplane side, we have wind turbine farms everywhere in America, around airports or at least close enough where it matters. And the radar systems do have trouble there, but they've used, of all things, software to eliminate those problems. So you know those wind turbines aren't moving around. They're fixed objects. You know where they're at. Uh, so the, the, they use software to sort of eliminate the backscatter from the wind turbines. That's the easiest solution. But in the case of ships, are you going to upload new software to every ship around the world so the radar system works? Probably, yeah. Roseberry, is there, it, there's really no other solution, is there, besides new software, a new subscription service update, something? It's funny. Actually, my mom is, um, she's a writer. She writes about uh, engineering and wartime um, things. And her current book, she's researching radar a lot um, and some, yeah, things to do with astronomy as well. And so I was reading an early draft of the book that goes through the early history of the development of, of radar. And I mean, there was problem after problem after problem. It's like really simple in, in theory to, you know, bounce, bounce waves off um, surfaces and then read it back. But you know, the early history of radar is all about just, oh, this this thing messes up the signal on this weather conditions and, you know, whatever, time after time, they had to, you know, get smarter with their radar. And I mean, it's already incredibly smart. And I just feel like this will be one extra thing that they have to, that they have to add. Uh, I'd be pretty surprised if, you know, the radar, <laughs> the radar people can't, find a workaround for the um, the wind turbine issue, I, you know, what's, what's the implication that instead of, you know, solving a problem with radar, we just stop offshore wind, even though, you know, the whole rest of the world is, is managing to, to cope with ships and offshore wind farms, but the U.S. can't. I mean, it just, it seems, hey, <laughs> it seems highly unlikely to me. Easy. Go USA. <laughs> I'm no. saying I have full confidence in your, in your people to solve this problem without, <laughs> without having to, you know, pull out the whole, the whole of the U.S.'s. Uh, offshore wind farms. I don't know there, crazy. there's some <laughs> radar salesperson thinking man I can buy a new boat because I got to sell thousands of these new updated radars there's someone yeah. there's someone thinking that I guarantee you there is and they're probably right because they're probably going to have to sell a bunch of new radar systems and okay that's cool but yeah it's just uh the world changes so fast you can't expect to use any piece of hardware more than five years without having some sort of update so you know yeah, I bet it'll be an update. Exactly. I don't think people are going to be buying new ships and new radar systems. No, no, I think radar systems will update. Yeah, no, I do think radar systems will update. I think that they have to, right? There's so much going on that they'll have to do that. But uh, yeah, you know, the, the the ship thing is a big problem. And it's one of the discussion points here in the States. Um, what are we going to do? Because when we do put these offshore wind sites where we're planning to put them, there, there is shipping in and out of there. So they're going to have to f find a way. I, I know they've thought about it and I know they have shipping lanes already defined. But like we've seen once in a while, uh, ships have problems and kind of go adrift and run into stuff. And hopefully, <laughs> you know, hopefully we do a better job of tracking them and catching them before they do some real damage. And having a radar system is one of the ways you would do that, right? And yeah, so this is going to be a big, bigger issue before it's over. But uh, it's not insurmountable. Well, stick, sticking with offshore, there's uh, a new venture from Maersk to, oh wait, Rosemary, I knew it, I knew it, jump in there, Maersk, Maersk. You did that on purpose, no, I just, you did that I, on purpose. I, I, Maersk. <laughs> yeah, that's All right, There we go. Uh, you're welcome, listeners, you're welcome. <laughs> welcome to Rosemary's Grammar Hour. Um, 
So, so Maersk, man, that is such a hard word for an American, for a Yankee to say, uh, they are developing offshore charging buoys to hopefully find, you know, basically like rendezvous points, checkpoints, where a ship could potentially go to battery power and stop idle and charge at these charging buoys. So obviously offshore wind out there generating the power. Maybe then it goes to a substation, then to these charging buoys, and you know their fleet of ships can stop along the way, idle, charge, and then get going again. Uh, Rosemary, does this seem like a viable way to get? Because we've we've talked that offshore, or I'm sorry, um, the shipping industry across the oceans hasn't really shown much signs of moving to battery power. Do you feel like this is going to help? get us there yeah i think it will be route dependent because obviously offshore wind farms even when we have floating wind they're not going to be in the really deep waters right so you're not just going to go install an offshore wind farm every you know five thousand kilometers along all the existing shipping routes um but where there are wind farms or where you could put one in on a you know somewhat close to an existing shipping route then um, that sounds like a, a great idea and shipping is one of those really tricky decarbonization problems so um, I, I think like it's pretty well established that for really short haul shipping it's going to be electric and maybe an idea like this could help bring up you know that threshold a little bit a little bit further. Alan what are some of the challenges here I mean it seems like what Rosemary just said makes sense that these are probably be smaller vessels because I'm thinking, I mean, if you want these container ships, that battery's got to be gigantic and the power to, to fuel that thing up seems pretty significant. Right. I think part of the issue they're having right now off the coast of Los Angeles, where all these uh, ships are waiting offshore to unload their uh, supplies and all the, <laughs> all the things that are coming over from China is that they're causing pollution because in order to keep the ship running, it's got to burn that really cruddy diesel fuel to keep the power on to, to mon keep the ship running. So you could reduce a number of emissions uh, just by powering it, running electricity to the ship so they didn't have to burn so much diesel. And they did recently push those ships off the coast of Los Angeles further out because of the pollution problem. There's so many ships off the coast of Los Angeles that they were having smog issues, which is not great, but maybe unload them faster. That may be an answer. We haven't figured that one out either. So so instead, we're going to put these charging Rep ports out in the ocean. Replicants. Yeah. We need replicants. <laughs> replicants, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. I watched Blade Runner the other day. Yeah. It, it <laughs> we'll treat them better than me. they did in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe. So the the if we're, if we're going to put charging ports out in the ocean so that we burn less diesel, that I think makes total, total sense. But I think it's sort of like a combination thing, Rosemary. Like, if we unloaded the ships faster, there'd be less burning of cruddy diesel off the coastlines, thereby reducing the emissions and making the ships actually work better. But I, you know, some some of the, some of the to talk politics for a second. Some of the some of the people that are most uh, environmentally conscious are not taking care of that ship problem off the coast of Los Angeles. And I can't figure out like why, if you're concerned about the environment, then unload the dang ships. Let's go. But it, it hasn't happened. In fact, they've been stacking up more and more ships as we've gone on. And um, it, it, you, you got to think about the problem from a more global perspective. And sometimes we don't, right? We, we just say, oh, you know, we have this problem. We have smog. Well, here's the solution. 
just move them further away so I can't see the smog. That's not the solution, right? The solution is to fix the problem, which is unloading ships. And um, you know, just like with everything else, everything's incremental. Putting charging ports out in the ocean, I think makes sense, right? It would reduce emissions. It's a smart move. But there's other ways to help reduce emissions too. And we should be doing all of them, not just the one that gets us the PR. I just listened to a podcast with Arnold Schwarzenegger the other day. We need him to train everyone in California, get them strong again, to get these ships unloaded. He actually is very passionate about his uh, environmentalism. It's really interesting, actually, listen to how much he's done is for he the vegan? climate. Probably not, but I think he's made up for it. I think he's, I think I he's, I think he's carbon neutral um, with all of his stuff. But he's a, he's a really interesting man. I didn't know. I learned a lot about him in this recent uh, podcast. But um, moving on. More ship news, and this is, I think, part of the battery issue is and there was a, a burned ship recently carrying like half a billion dollars of luxury cars almost, and it caught fire. The crew abandoned ship. It was getting towed back to port and eventually just destabilized and I guess turned over and sunk. So goodbye, all you Lamborghinis and half a million dollar cars or a lot of Bentleys and stuff on there. But they're not sure how the fire started, but I think there's some speculation that it was an electric because there were some all electric vehicles on there. And it's been well documented how difficult it is to pull out an, an electric battery fire. Um, Alan, I mean, do you feel like issues like this are I mean, imagine if the ship is filled with batteries, like the entire, you know, ballast is batteries. There's going to be and then they'll be up in flames in a minute and they might not get the crew off in a situation like that with how fast these get engulfed um i mean is this going to be a, a a big thing that we see more in the future or are they going to continue to get better at mitigating these risks well it depends what kind of batteries we put on them right on a ship of that size maybe we don't put lithium ions on maybe we do some of these other alternative battery technologies so they don't catch fire and and it sinks so fast it's really hard like you mentioned it's really hard to put out lithium ion fires i don't know if you ever seen one or been around one but yeah they're 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 kind of nasty. You really can't do much besides let it burn itself out, which let is it burn out. Yeah, that's what they did on the ship too. They kind of just put cold water on it so they wouldn't melt the steel, and off off they went. Right, you just hope for the best. It'll burn itself out. We have to find a solution to that problem, right? Because you can't insure. You couldn't insure a ship, right? Think about it, Dan. If you if one car goes up. Yeah, and the whole the whole ship is done. Like that'd be scary. That would be really scary. And I'm not sure he could find anybody to pilot the the ship, and we would crew it. It's it just seems unimaginable, and we can't find a solution yeah, for that. I think we are already already making progress towards solving some of these um, new issues with lithium ion battery fires. I know in um, in Melbourne, Australia, there's a new big, big battery. And just before it was commissioned, one of the modules caught fire. Um, and it took a few days to get it under control, but it never spread to another module because they have the, the safety, you know, the, the design is safe. And you, they know that once a lithium ion battery fire starts, it's hard to stop. So in that case, it was kind of like, it seemed like at the time, oh no, this is going to be terrible for, you know, the, the decarbonization effort and installing more grid um, grid scale batteries but it actually sort of seemed like okay this is the worst case scenario that's happened and it it was contained and now we know what the worst is we know that we can make make this work but it is going to require a different type of design for safety than for other systems 
And I mean, you have to remember with, with ships, I mean, um, already ships, shipping is already a cause of a lot of, um, you know, potential for accidents and environmental destruction. So uh, just because there is a, a new kind of problem, we also so solve some of the old problems. So I think, yeah, it's just a matter of new, new problems come and we you know, engineers. Wasn't the Melbourne solution the way that he had set it up? Like every all the batteries were containerized, but the the little fire break was essentially that they separated the containers so that one wouldn't catch the next one on fire. Yeah, we talked about that story because I mentioned that that reminded me of fireworks. Like old firework plants, they put them in different you know huts or little buildings, and they're all far enough away where if one goes up, they're not going to destroy the entire lot of them. Yeah. So what do you do? You put like a, a battery powered BMW next to a Chrysler? And you well, just that's the question. Chrysler they need to be space. in little, in little, almost like the way ships have their, uh, you know, their what do you call them? Their hulls, right? Like if the, if the EVs are on their special spot where if one of them gets goes up in flames, they just like you know turn cl close the doors and suck all the oxygen out, and that I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what you do because like you said, they burn so hot they could melt the hole in the bottom of the boat. Maybe. Yeah, I think know? I think you have to shove it off the ship, right? I think you in your dream world, you just shove it off the ship, write it up as a loss, and keep moving. That, that'd be a heck that'd of be a the way I do it. Watch, watch that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the answer. <laughs> well, sticking with offshore winds, uh, the New York Bite offshore wind auction is, I guess, now complete, and four point three seven billion in winning bids. So as you look at this grid, which you know we learned from. Uh, our attorney friend, uh, Kevin Ewing, they got their fun Tetris shapes and, uh, you know, tons of acreage. So um, one of the winning companies, OW Ocean Winds East, uh, paid $765 million for 71,522 acres. Uh, the largest was Bitewind Bite Holdings, paying $1.1 billion for 125,964 acres. So... Alan, you're shaking your head. This was a, a pretty big auction. Crazy. When we did talk to Kevin about the auctions, you remember he had said that they had an auction that went over two days. This one went over three days. It was the third day where they finally settled the, the price. The starting price, if you add them all up, the starting price was $40 million for all, all the parcels. Ended up at four billion, so we're off by a factor of is that a hundred, right? <laughs> so it, it took they were off by a factor of a hundred. You know, usually you're off by a factor of ten at an auction, and you you know hope to get ten x. That's your dream, right? And they got a factor of a hundred, so something is really askew there on what they thought the value of those of those sites were. I, Four billion dollars is not small amount of money, uh, so there must be money in wind, right? There must be a lot of money in offshore wind. And they and the only thing I could come back with is they've already have PPA agreements uh, to sell that energy and they knew they could put those kind of high bids in and still be okay on the differential. That's the only thing that makes sense to me because if you're riding on the day-to-day the -day, uh, price of electricity in the United States, you could get burned by that. And in fact, the Europeans don't do it that way at all. They, they don't at least they haven't allowed negative, what they call a negative bidding process, where you actually have to pay money for the the, the plot of land or ocean. Um, usually, the Europeans are asking for subsidies, so the, the bids are on how much subsidies you need. In the United States, you're actually getting four billion dollars up front just for the the right to or the permit to or the right to to submit for a permit 
to put wind turbines in. That's a huge $4 billion risk. That's, um, you know, that's for stronger stomachs than mine. Rosemary, do, do, you, do you find that amazing? $4 billion for some plots of ocean? That seems like a lot, right? Yeah, I was actually at a couple of auctions on the weekend because me and my partner are trying to buy a house at the moment. And um, this it reminded me a, a bit of what the property market is doing where I live at the moment. Not 100 times different, but there was there's been a couple of auctions recently that have been nearly 50% more than what we thought that they might um, might go for. But I think that's probably our, our own naivety um, as much as it is the market. But I, it's crazy to me. I, I am not currently understanding exactly the economics of offshore wind because when you look at the numbers you know the lazard levelized cost of energy for off wind it it's high capacity factors are good but um in places like at least australia and i assume the us too there's still onshore sites left with good capacity factors there's a new wind farm being developed a huge wind farm being developed in south australia it's over a gigawatt i'm pretty sure and it has a capacity factor of 48 percent onshore so um I know I talked to the developer. I talked to the developers of that um, recently, and they're like, "Yeah, why would we get into offshore when there's still, you know, uh, like amazing onshore sites like like this available?" So um, I don't get it, but I am prepared to accept that there must be more to it than I can see, and I must not be able to foresee the future very well when it comes to the technology trajectory or cost trajectory of offshore wind. Because I mean, this isn't just one silly investor that drives up prices like this right it's a bidding war that causes an outcome like this so i'll be really interested to see you know what happens with with the next ones and also you know in 10 years time are these projects profitable for the the developers yeah it's a very interesting place to watch well speaking of uh offshore wind auctions Despite the boom here in the U.S. and the boom overseas, uh, EU is only on track to build about half of the wind energy it needs to meet their green deal, um, getting their goals by met by 2030. So, you know, in 2011, the EU only built 11 gigawatts, and they're set to build 18 gigawatts on average between 2022 and 2026, but they really need about 30 gigawatts a year. And of course, if they fall behind now, it's not 30 gigawatts a year. There's going to have to be more than 30 gigawatts to catch up. Uh, Rosemary, what's your take? Is this becoming unrealistic? Can they actually catch up and speed? Uh, obviously, bigger turbines continue to come out every year. Could they maybe just sub in some extra, you know, enormous ones to, to make up some ground? I, I think they absolutely could do it. And I think maybe they will do it now that there is so much incentive for Europe to sort out its, you know, energy independence and get away from really, really volatile fossil fuel prices. So um, I wasn't feeling very optimistic about their, their capabilities to, to get the job done um, until, until recently, you know, over the last six months or so when um, gas prices started to rise really high. But I think what they need to do is to sort out the bureaucracy and transmission. I know that they have huge problems in Europe putting in any major new transmission lines. And I think maybe now that people are really seeing the pain of, uh, um, you know, an energy system that has not not um, you know proceeded smoothly um, with the through the transition. Uh, 
now people are seeing pain in their own personal electricity and gas bills, I think you might start to see less opposition to major new transmission projects that are so desperately needed to get the renewables from where they're available and cheap to where people want to live in, in Europe. So, yeah, I think that's really the key, though, is the, the bureaucracy. It's, you know, it's so hard to get um, development approvals and, and everything you need for new projects. And then probably number one is, um, is transmission. Well, how, how does if we talk about energy redundancy? what is going to be done with redundancy, right? I, I think the issue that uh, a lot of Eastern European countries and now Germany and a number of others are having is uh, Russian natural gas and having a backup plan. Wind is obviously going to be really aggressively uh, pursued. It already was, but this Ukrainian situation is going to accelerate that. But they're going to have to have to balance the grid, right? They're going to have to have ways to dealing with uh, multiple energy sources. So the the the, the thing I, I always try to figure out here is what's the second piece, right? Is it nuclear? Is it solar? Or is it both? It's going to and can you deal? Can you create an economy, a civilization without some level of natural gas slash oil? I don't know if you can. At least not in the next ten years. I don't think you can. You can reduce it, but I don't think you can eliminate it. How do how do I? I, I just don't know how Europe's going to do it. It doesn't have the infrastructure. Yeah, but they don't need to switch off. They don't need to switch off gas tomorrow. They need to use less and less and and less. So um, that's the. It's very complementary to variable renewables. They still have all of their gas turbines there, um, and if they use them only when you know that if they build out a lot more wind and solar, they'll still have the gas there to fill in for those times when that's not right. So I, I think that. In that sense, it's not it's not a matter of switching off gas tomorrow. I mean, not all that gas comes from Russia. Um, you, you, and even if it did, reducing would still, you know, be a big help. But I think for, for Europe, for Northern Europe, um, their problem is largely heat. I mean, that's mostly what they use gas for. And that's what all their storage problems are, are around that, you know, they need just a lot of heat in the wintertime. And there, I think that they need to really start getting serious about energy efficiency um, and heat pumps, but also alternative forms of, of heat like, you know, solar thermal, which they're using a lot in Scandinavia. You might be surprised that somewhere so cold can actually get a lot of a lot of heat from solar thermal and they store it, um, you know, seasonally. Um, I think the more that they can come from different sources, the faster they can go, because I mean, I've seen a lot of talk about, oh, we just need to roll out heat pumps everywhere. And I think we do, but that needs to really come in combination with transmission, new transmission, because it's going to massively increase um, electricity demand. So if I was if I was in charge of of this in Europe, I would be starting with uh, energy, energy efficiency, solar thermal where you can and, yeah, roll out heat pumps and transmission in in tandem to gradually move away, uh, away from, you know, reliance on these volatile fossil fuels. And I'm not sure, Alan... Do you use a heat pump? I'm not really familiar with what a heat pump is, but they're not very common in the U.S. Rosemary, what, what's the story? Because I know they're really heavily used elsewhere. 
Yeah, well, in Australia, everyone has heat pumps because um, it's the same as an air conditioner. If you've got an air conditioner, then you can you can use it as a, a heat pump as well. Um, but basically, a heat pump is just a way of transferring heat from, you know, there's some heat in air even when it's cold. Even if it's below freezing, there's still some heat in the air. And a heat pump is a way that you can, you know, via <laughs> compression and um, decompression, the physics kind of resembles magic in this case because you end up with a lot more heat out than the electricity you put into it so where a gas boiler might be 90 percent maybe 95 percent efficient at um, turning the energy and gas into heat a heat pump will give you in australia three three hundred four hundred percent efficiency from the um from the electricity that you put in so um yeah that that's in a nutshell how they work but it does on, sound Dan. like magic which is why rosemary just love them. violated the first law of thermodynamics at least at least one of yeah, them above, maybe two of them above, come on above 100 percent. i don't understand is that is that the one did i get it well it's a it's a coefficient it's a coefficient of performance not uh not an efficiency it's, it's wrong of me to say that they're 300 efficient it is just moving heat around you don't create any heat but it feels like you're violating the laws of thermodynamics because, you know, from your point of view, you've put in, you know, 100 watts of electricity and you've gotten out 400 watts of um, Well, in the heat. spirit of you correcting my grammar, I'm going to say that this <laughs> explanation was very unhelpful and I didn't really understand. I have no further understanding <laughs> of how he flag on work. the play, right? Yeah. There's been a... So <laughs> you a gave penalty. it a good shot, but we're not quite there. I'm assuming there's a magic wand involved and oh, maybe some sort going, of dust, I think maybe magic beans. No, no, I don't know. stop there, Rosemary. You're, you're fine you where you're at. You sprinkle the dust yeah. on your air conditioner and then it becomes hot. <laughs> Noted. Uh, well, moving on, there's been a lot of uh, cuts in the workforce. We'll start with Siemens Gamesa. They've laid off 30, 37% of their employees at their wind nacelle plant in Hutchinson um, and in its Iowa turbine plant. So, Alan, these are in mid-America, in the Midwest here. Um closer to where you grew up, this is not a good sign. Obviously, we know the uh, supply chain issues, the profit margin pinches, the inflation. Uh, are they all leading up to these these cuts from Siemens Gamesa? Absolutely. And I, but I also think it's a, uh, maybe a combination of offshore wind taking out the majority of the future and onshore wind stepping down a little bit. The, the, I, I, I would, attended the Blades USA Forum last week in Austin, Texas. Yeehaw. Right. Uh, it was warm there compared to Massachusetts. Yeah. Why aren't you wearing a cowboy hat? You're wearing glasses, but no cowboy hat. What's yeah, the that's deal? true. You know, they should have given us a cowboy hat. It's one of those little party favor things they hand out at conferences, but they didn't. That's very odd. They uh, get expensive. They're very handcrafted and well-made when they're. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, when I was down there, one of the, the, the discussion points that came up during the conference was, uh, the quality of the wind turbines out of the factories and that the engineers will never admit defeat, right? Engineers always design perfect things. If there's a problem, it's in manufacturing. Okay, fine, sure. And my, my take on it was, well, the, the, problem, the problem that manufacturing has is that you hire a bunch of people who may not have any experience, who, who's built a wind turbine blade, on, who has it on their resume, wind turbine blade builder. Not many people, so you have to train them. You train them, and then you lay them off, and then you bring them back, then you lay them off, and then you close the factory, you move the factory from Iowa to New Jersey. You're just constantly changing people. Building blades and making wind turbines is a really difficult thing to do. That's why we have trouble with it. 
bringing staff on and off, uh, which financially you have to do, doesn't make quality better. It's going to make it harder. And everybody who's left remains has obviously a more difficult task to do. So, you know, it's part of this whole turbulence in the wind industry of getting consistently high quality products out the door. And I think the engineers and I think all the people that work there are trying to do that. But it is hard to do when you have such fluctuating workforces. I don't I don't see this Iowa, Kansas um, situation as being beneficial. Right. You like to keep everybody. If you've got them trained and they're quality employees, you like to keep them. That's I, that's that's your dream. Uh, but the marketplace is not allowing that right now. And I, I think as an owner operator, I would be concerned about that, that, that those fluctuations uh, can mean problems when I get the wind turbines installed. And that's not good. And Rosemary, you used to work at one of the uh, OEMs, I'll call it, that that uh, built blades. Did you have that same sort of issue, just the kind of the ebb and flow of manufacturing people in and out? Yeah, and it depends where um, in the world as well. I know that um, it's common in, you know, all manufacturers in, in the U.S. struggle with um, even if they're not having to lay off people because of, you know, a lack of demand for the product, there is still a high high churn of um, employees and there's certain places in Europe where that's true. It's always based on like pretty local factors, what other kinds of jobs are available and um, yeah, that sort of thing. But in general, wind turbine blades, at least, the um, when they open a new factory, they're going to staff it nearly entirely from people who have never had experience making wind turbine blades before. They'll bring in, obviously, a lot of people, um, engineers, and also they, they bring in good workers from other factories, maybe for the first um, month or several months to get them up and running. But you're right, you do rely on some people <laughs> sticking around um, long enough to kind of continue that that culture of quality. And where a factory can't achieve that for whatever reason, it makes it incredibly hard to to maintain quality yeah. at the required Yeah, it's standard. trouble. I, 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 we've going through the same thing in the aviation industry, right? That the big knock on Boeing right now is, is uh, employees and the culture, the quote unquote culture, whatever that means. Uh, I think of culture as just people, right? And turbulence in people leads to turbulence in the products. It just has to, there's nothing to do about it. But um, like in Europe, and, and there's a lot of discussion in Europe about stabilizing the wind industry, we need to do the same thing in the United States. If we're going to rely upon it to, to you know, put these wind turbines out in this four billion dollar plot of ocean we just created we're going to need some consistency there and hopefully we can stop the churn and do what needs to be done deliver high quality products consistently and that takes good that takes good employees trained employees to do that well and shareholders for siemens gamesa have been pretty upset i mean that's actually probably an understatement they've been outraged furious at management uh there have been four profit warnings in the last 18 months uh, they've lost billions of uh, their market value, and this past year they had a 289 uh, euro, million euro loss, uh, basically on order backlogs and all that. So uh, that was actually just the first three months of this fiscal year. So, Alan, I mean, there's a lot of turmoil in Siemens Gamesa. What do you think their path is forward to start riding this ship and, and getting back towards profitability? It's stability at the top but also playing the long game here. It does seem like there's a lot of shareholder input into the company 
and demands for to be profitable right away. And you would think a large industrial company like this would be profitable. There is money to be had in wind. Clearly there is. We just saw $4 billion of it. But for the OEMs, it doesn't seem to be profitable. And they are losing money. Most of them are losing money. I think uh, Vestas may be the only one that did make a little bit of money last year. That's a problem not so much that the companies can fix, but that the countries they're in are going to have to get their heads around. You're talking about politicians and, and the communities stepping up to figure out how they can help. Because if they don't, they're going to lose some of these manufacturers. It's, an, it's almost inevitable right now. You're going to, uh, either going to treat these wind turbine manufacturers as a national asset, a critical national asset, or you're not. And I think, I think Europe should start defining them as critical assets. It doesn't mean that you have to take it over and run it. Like you don't want Germany necessarily running, <laughs> running a wind turbine company. And you sure as heck don't want the U.S. government running GE's wind turbine operations. That would not be smart. But I, you have to stabilize what's happening. Stabilize what's happening right now. Steel prices have gone off the charts. Right. Uh, uh, all, all your, all your supplies, main supplies have gotten super expensive, and, and the supply chain's all messed up because you can't deliver anything on time. Uh, those are not specific to wind, but it is impacting wind probably greater than some other industries. So it takes prioritizing. What, what are you going to do first? I think your energy infrastructure is one of those high national security items. You should be prioritizing the electric grid. You should be prioritizing natural gas. <laughs> you should be pri prioritizing home heating, like Rosemary's saying. Uh, they need to be doing that. And I, I think finally, the OEMs are starting to step up and, and be vocal about it to the right platforms. U.S. national government, the EU um, government, uh, and their local, local countries too. And Rosemary... I, I, is there another way to address this problem besides basically declaring it a national emergency? Yeah, actually, I don't know what the solution to this problem is, but it has occurred to me that more and more wind turbines are becoming like it, like it's a commodity. You know, it's just um, purely <laughs> sold on on price, and everyone's cutting, cutting, cutting. But I mean, it's not a commodity. It's an incredibly high tech thing with you know so many engineers are involved in designing. Quality is important. Safety is important. Um, it's really strange to see it be yeah just purely a, a, a game of reducing. Reducing costs and reducing, 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 which, um, you know, it's, it's very keenly felt by anyone working in the industry now. It's just there's no no money around for, you know, improving technology or anything. It's got to be we're still improving the technologies, obviously, but it's all done within this just overarching framework of reduced costs, um, you know, work faster. It's, it's really hard and it's one of the reasons why I, I wanted to move on from working solely in the, the wind industry um, because it has reached that, you know, it's a mature technology, but, you know, how long can it survive if it's uh, if no one can make it profitable? It's obviously, it's not a long-term thing. All the OEMs, major OEMs, signed a letter to the, the head of the EU, the president of the EU, and, and basically said, we can't. The, the governments need to do something here. And they had a couple of things that make sense to me, right? Uh, no 
negative bidding, which is just what happened off the coast of New York, right? That the, you, you, if you're having the the power power companies pay for access to certain plots of land, it leaves less money on the table for wind turbine manufacturers. Yes, it does, right? In the case of the U.S., we just took $4 billion off the table that could have gone to wind turbine manufacturers, which would have helped tremendously. Uh, and, and at the same time, you have to worry about, uh, and the, the letter to the EU president said this straight out, we have to worry about China. Like at some point, China can start dumping wind turbines. They're already doing it in South America, Africa, um, parts of obviously parts of Asia, such that it is part of the uh, this the Chinese government plan of sort of belt and was it belt and roads whatever that plan is that they have to try to expand their network of influence. Wind is part of that system. I think people are starting to become aware of of just how much that is not a strategy for the the future to just allow other countries that you're not particularly politically aligned with, you know, just allow them to monopolize critical things. I mean, you saw it um, with the, yeah, like battery supply chains is a good example and other critical minerals. People are starting to cotton on that. Yeah. I mean, China's been very smart with their, their strategies surrounding all those kinds of things, but um, yeah, now we're starting to see people maybe belatedly realize that this is not going to take us to a good place in 10, 20 years. And so uh, I think now is the right time to start to reassess. But you would like for Nordex and Siemens and uh, pick them, all of them, uh, all the OEMs to be making, you know, five, 10 percent uh, a year. Right. You would like to see that sort of turn on investment. They're not there. They are right They're at zero or negative. That's not a place they can live there very long. They, something needs to change like now. We can't have the, we can't be having the same discussion a year from now. We need to get on it now yeah and nordex has laid off uh looks like about one in five uh german workers just this past week they've cut uh, looks like 600 from their rostock facility so it's not limited to siemens gamesa everyone's really in a, cr a crunch at the moment um but and we'll uh see if this comes to fruition there's still innovation being had uh petrofac which is a, a global company uh they operate energy facilities um, they've entered into an agreement with Seawind Ocean Tech to deploy some six megawatt two-bladed floating wind turbines. Um, so they're going to have a 126 meter rotor diameter. It says rotor speed, maybe like 21 RPM at their rate of power. Uh, Rosemary, what's, and you've, you have a ultra successful video on YouTube about explaining the difference between two blades and three bladed wind turbines, because so many people have that question of, why have they evolved to be this this tri-rotor design? Um, so, A, do you see this being successful? But it looks like it has the backing. We'll, I mean, we'll see. Um, but why is this the first time this is being tried? And what's the value proposition here? So, uh, first, it's not the first time it's being tried. There's always been two-bladed wind turbines, and including um, Anacon had an offshore two-bladed, no, not Anacon, Envision, had a two-bladed um, wind turbine for offshore not that long ago um it was really interesting interesting design and the the blade design was done by ln wind power so i talked to the engineers working on on that but um yeah so so that out of the way but the main difference between two and three blades um the reason why you nearly always see three blades is because 
two blades is not a very stable design. And the way I explained it in that video that you referenced, it's like when you see a figure skater um, doing a, a pirouette with, um, with her arms out, she turns more slowly and then, you know, they bring their arms up and then all of a sudden they're, they're turning very, very fast. Um, and so a three-bladed, uh, two-bladed wind turbine, when the blades are horizontal, that's like the figure skater with her arms out. And when she's got them up, that's like a two-bladed turbine with the blades straight up and down. So when the turbine is yawing, um, so turning to face a changing wind direction, the force that it needs to turn changes a lot depending on what position the blades are in. So that's one reason. Another reason is that every time the, a wind turbine blade passes the, the tower, you get a, a little bit of a, you know, an effect from the, the tower passing. That also is smoothed out a bit more from having three blades. So in general, wind turbines, you want the smallest number of blades possible because that uses less materials, it's easier to transport, all those sorts of things. Um, but you usually have three because it's more stable. But you can overcome all those problems. And I think that this one is a, a teetering design, right? Which means that they get, a, they get around these problems by um, tilting the, the rotor a little bit, um, <laughs> depending on, on the position of the, the rotor, whether it's horizontal or, or vertical blades. And that's a design you see on a lot of small wind turbines. Um, there's a really common two-bladed wind turbine in Denmark, um, I think it's called Gaia, and I did check up on them recently. I think they've gone out of business, but it's all over Danish wind farms on um, the west coast of, of Jutland. And those ones, I just have a system of springs, and so it's just, you know, a passive system that they kind of make up for some of these, you know, force disturbances that happen from having a two-bladed design, you know, just constantly changing. They make up for that with, with springs. Um, so I'm assuming... A six megawatt machine. No, I think it is. <laughs> right? I think I think it's going to have springs. I think, yeah, that's what it sounded like. Where do these springs go? What, 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 are these, what is this thing? Uh, on, on the blade and the hub on the tower? Between the, um, like on, on the hub, basically. So you control the angle that the, the rotor makes with the tower, say. Um, yeah. And I mean, I've seen it. And you can look, look at my, <laughs> my video to see that. Oh, you don't want to give away all your secrets. Uh, I have to go to Rose's Got YouTube it. channel. Okay. <laughs> it's just very hard to... <laughs> it's very hard to de describe describe things with words, you know? Engineers are visual, um, <laughs> spatial kind of, of people. But the reason why we don't see a lot of two-bladed wind turbine designs out there isn't because no one knows how to do it. There have been plenty of examples of, of people trying and, and producing successful engineering um, of a two-bladed turbine. It's, it's always the, the economics in the market. It's, uh, you know, it doesn't provide a, a benefit actually for um, the, the cost it, you know, customers haven't wanted it. But I mean, for offshore, the installation cost is, um, you know, an issue. And so two bladed design does make more sense if you can just, it looks like it's a solid single blade actually that, you know, they're attaching in the center. If they can save a lot of money in their um, transport and installation costs, that's good. The turbine currently is very small for offshore. So um, I'm not sure what they're getting at there. I'm really surprised that they think that 50 years is the right design lifetime. Um, you know, in 50 years, maybe we've got nuclear fusion. It's kind of, it's a bit, a bit weird to make a six megawatt wind turbine that they, that they think is going to be, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I don't give good odds for this specific wind turbine, but there's definitely no engineers, engineering reason why not having 
two blades on a wind turbine. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, where you can check out her two-blade versus three-blade rotor video. We'll link to that so you can check it out. And uh, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen, and we will see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. This is why it just makes sense to install a WeatherGuard Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your technicians are going up tower. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.